Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Lettuce Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom Bestic Media Network. I am your host, as always, Keith Rovere. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, a couple things. One, if you haven't noticed, I've been in the news a lot lately. <laughs> Almost any news station you turn on, you hear about the Long Island serial killer suspect, Rex Hurman, and his new pen pal. Somebody you know if you're a fan of the show, fan of my podcast, uh, you know the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. Um, it's been a wild ride because uh, Keith obviously sent me the letter. Uh, he did a, I guess, an interview with the Florida uh, detectives about the, the woman who's been identified, um, which, you know, he's already, they've known that he, that he killed her, um, sadly to say. Um, but they now know her name. And as they were, you know, talk to him about that, because obviously charges have been brought up against them. He's handling that now. Um, they did a, they had a body cam. Uh, the one of the women detectives, sheriffs, I'm not sure what they called themselves in, in Florida. Uh, and it asked him if it was okay if they released some of this, um, video to the press. And he said, yes. Well, the part that he released was him talking about Rex Hooverman, uh, that Rex had wrote him. Um, if you, you know, listen to the podcast, you know the story that he asked me for his address in jail. I found it, gave it to him. He wrote Rex and he wrote him back. Uh, he sent me the letter. Um, I mean, mostly for, you know, partly safekeeping, mostly because um, you might have known that I was going to be part of a Dateline NBC special on Rex that was released a week or two ago. Uh, about the, now, I didn't have the letter at that point. I was just talking about the letter that uh, in their pen pal relationship. We're going to we're going to talk about that on on the show. But they decided to focus a little bit more on the victims, you know, rightfully so. And it, the whole thing was next. So it was cool. You know, the producers were real nice. One of the higher-ups just wanted to go in a different direction. Well, Keith kind of thought that they were lying about that, um, about, you know, it was about the victims. Said, no, I, I, I think that they don't think I'm telling the truth. So he sent me the letter, and a note that he wrote uh, in that envelope when he sent me the letter was, hey, now you can show the Dateline producers that I'm not a liar. Because when Keith was first arrested, he said a lot of things in the press to get their attention. There were lies uh, for one reason or another. Um, but then, again, that's you know the two reasons why I got the letter. And so when he released the video, I released the letter, and the, it went viral. Um, so that was that. And I'm going to go back and listen to the last couple of weeks' podcast. You know, Keith talks specifically about that, goes into great detail about it. Um, I've been on Nancy Grace, Inside Edition, all the major news networks. Like, um, the Independent's doing a story on me now, it looks like. So that's going to be pretty cool. See how that turns out. Um, with Keith, um, we're going to hopefully do a, a video podcast too. That's another thing. Go to YouTube um, and search The Lighter Side of Serial Killers. You'll see that I am starting a new video podcast. Now, I'm still working some kinks out. I uploaded one with Susan Monica, uh, who's known as the Pig Lady, um, supposedly. You know, she was convicted of uh, killing a few people, a few men who uh, lived and worked at her uh, pig farm and fed them to the pigs. So you get to hear and see, you know, from Susan Monica. So do me a huge, huge flavor. Uh, go to YouTube, subscribe, like, and share all that fun stuff. I'm just getting started. Looks like we have about 700 subscribers already. Uh, the video, a uh, couple hundred likes and uh, or a couple, I'm sorry, a couple hundred views. It looks like. Uh, so that's off to a pretty good start. And we're going to be getting more guests coming for the video platform, too. Dana Gray, Zero Color Dana Gray is going to be coming up. Louise Turpin said she's going to come up. And uh, um, those are going to be recorded pretty soon. The uh, other facilities, like San Quentin, I have to be approved, which I'm going through that process now, to do a in-person visit. 
And that enables me to also do video visits, you know, remotely because I'm on the East Coast, obviously on the West Coast. Uh, I know a lot of people in San Quentin and a bunch of them said they want to come on to the video podcast also. So keep your eyes and ears open. Uh, again, subscribe to the channel. You'll see uh, under Keith Revere, the light side of serial killers, pretty easy to find. Uh, and yeah, share, 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 share. Same with the podcast. Uh, but today, um, is obviously, it's not just serial killers. Um, yeah, it's usually somewhat the topic. Uh, i got a couple authors coming up. Uh, today, I'm really excited. And what caught my eye, Gloria Steger, where uh, a former detective um, in, in the Seattle area, and there's a book, uh, somebody I know, Gary Grant, uh, nickname is Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer. Uh, I've posted pictures that uh, Gary had sent me before. Uh, maybe one day we'll have him on the show, whether it's the audio or video. Um, and what he has done at his facility, they started, um, I want to say it's a class, started a program where they bring in stray cats and Gary trains them to be adopted. I think hundreds of cats. And you see two pictures um, and maybe I'll post them, you know, tied in with the podcast too on some of my social media sites when I upload this. And you can see him holding cats. One, I think he has the COVID mask on, you know, petting the cats. Um, and he's always sad when the cats go to a new home. You know, we always talk about serial killers, you know, have no empathy. and But, you know, some actually do have empathy towards animals for some reason. I'm not really sure why that is. Um, I mean, especially, I mean, I can understand. I mean, I think I like dogs more than people, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. I think we can un we can learn more about unconditional love from a dog than uh, uh, than humans sometimes. Um, but, but I've always been fascinated with Gary and his story. Um, but he wrote a book. It's called Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer, Gary Jean Grant. Which is great. I mean, he he's already ha obviously has ties to the Seattle community, uh, being in in, the, in that line of work, uh, obviously most of his life. Uh, so we go and talk to the original people who were part of the case, uh, and man, it, it a lot of it was botched. I mean, it was just an amazing, amazing story. Uh, so definitely, if you're any true crime fan, uh, you definitely have to pick up that book. It's on Amazon, um, and he also wrote another book. Uh, especially those who now I got a lot of people who follow me or, you know, some people are just love the serial killer stuff. But also a lot of people are like they love the forensic psychology of everything. And then they're going to school and they want to be detective. They want to be a cop. They want to catch the serial killers, you know, like the uh, the John Douglases of the world, the mine hunters of the world. Well, he written another book. You won't just enjoy that, but you might enjoy this one even better. Homicide, the view from inside the yellow tape. Um Countless. I mean, it's like rapid fire case after case after case that he personally worked on. You're going to learn the ins and outs of like every aspect of it. And a lot of it's not pretty, I got to tell you. Um, but I mean, if you want the truth, I mean, you want the, the reality of um, what that life's about. And we're going to talk about it in a minute. Uh, but check out both of those books. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll do a signed copy. Find his website out there, cloydsteger.com. That's C-L-O-Y-D-S-T-E-I-G-E-R.com. Um Check him out on social media. You can find him on Twitter. That's how we first connected. Um, tell him you heard the podcast. You know you like his, want to buy his books or you bought his book. And once you do, share it on social media. Uh, show him some love. Uh, so without further ado, let's hear from Cloyd. First, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, I guess we're probably you know in a, a similar age group. Um, I was thinking today and just talking to somebody about the generation of uh, children growing up today. When you kind of ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they would be, oh, a social media star, you know, something serial like that. But for us, it was like we want to be a policeman, you know, or right. a fireman or an astronaut or, you know, or something like right. that. Um, for you, um, was it from youth that you really I want to be a policeman and work, you know, a life of law enforcement? Or where did that really come from to uh, uh, make it your life's, uh, your life's work? Well, you know, I, it, it, 
it really did. I decided I wanted to be a police officer when I was 10 years old, and I never (laughs) wavered the rest of my life. (laughs) Uh, When I told my parents I wanted to be a police officer, they're like, oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's great. Uh, but it's good. It's something you always want to do. I mean, that t- typically makes, you know, more passionate about it. Something you want to do since right, it make yeah. it better at what you do typically. Yeah. Um, one of and the- I researched it a lot. I read a lot of nonfiction books about becoming a police officer. And, oh, wow. Okay. And working as a police officer all my life. Started out in elementary school libraries, uh, public libraries, and the junior high libraries, and the high school libraries, and still with public and, and ordering books. And so that's what I did my whole life. Oh, that's perfect. That's wonderful. Um, in the beginning of your book, you know, Homicide, the View from Inside the Yellow Tape, um, and I, I, I heard this from a few people where you say this life, um, this life is specifically yours. It's not like the movies and TV shows. Um, right. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, what you meant by that? Well, yeah, well, it's not, you know, well, especially TV shows, you know, done in 42 minutes. <laughs> for the <Yeah>. time <laughs> you get it even compounded. And then it's it's much grittier much uh, dirtier, nastier. You meet really nasty people. And uh, it's just, you know, it's a gritty, gritty reality. Like I, I, like, I think I said this in the book also, my home life's PG-13, but my work life is MA-17, right? That's the way. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. Uh, well, I recently had um, Frank Falzano on one saw the Richard Ramirez, a night stalker case, and uh, among many other right. popular ones. And one of the most fascinating things about him personally, I love, you know, live here more the you know, personalized people too, not just, you know, the books that they write, that he, through his whole career, he had a, a stable marriage, um, aside from you right. know, a couple of drinks with the boys, you know, he wasn't, you right. know, yeah. no, 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 nothing crazy, but you hear so many horror, right. horror stories where they're on their 13th wife and this marriage ain't working, yeah, alcoholic, yeah. and, but reading your book too, it seems like your same thing, you know, how did you maintain that stability? You know, in your personal life, you know, when the life that you live in the, on the streets, like you said, it's, it's not pretty and it's not for everybody. How did you manage yeah. such a stable life that way? Well, you know, I just celebrated my 42nd anniversary last week. Oh, and wow. so, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. And we, uh, but yeah, thanks. But she, uh, she knew what she was getting into. We actually met when I was 19 and she was 16. We didn't date. We just met. Mm-hmm. And I talked about, I'm going to be a police officer. And ironically, one of the things she said to me, oh, I could never be married to a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, then yeah. years later, we got together again and started dating. And then not only was she married to a police officer, she said two of her three sons that became police officers, oh, yeah. which I think was much harder on her than me being a police officer. Oh, so. I can imagine. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. And did you have like, or do you still have like a shutoff button? Now, we'll get into you know, some of the cases and how they affected you. But, I mean, when, when yeah. it's time to go home, it's like work is done. I shut the door. It's, it's family time now because some people can't do yeah, that. Yeah, it is. It, although, although it's not that I don't think about – I didn't think about cases when I was off, mm-hmm. but I didn't let them control my life. You know, mm-hmm. I did. And the other thing is I made home life a priority. My sons all played sports, in high, like high school football. And if I was in the middle of a murder case and my son had a high school football game, I would stop what I'm doing drive 25 miles to my suburban home, mm. watch the football game, and then drive back and go to work again. Yeah. I wouldn't miss the games, you know, if, if, if possible. I mean, you can't do that if it just happened. You know, it's brand new. You can't. But sure. a couple of days into it, yeah, I'm taking the time. And, you know, and, and everybody was fine with that, you know, because you have to keep – you have to stay grounded in this job. You can't mm-hmm. – you know, you can't live it 24-7, you know. It yeah. is a different – it is a lifestyle, not a job, but but you have to control it. Mm-hmm. 
Now, over uh, there's countless cases. I mean, for those who um, are going to pick up the book or have read the book, they see you know it's case after case after case, and I can imagine that's just you know not even scratching the surface of all the cases you've worked in over the years. Oh yeah. Um, What have been some of the cases that to this day maybe you can't shake, so to speak, or or they still stay with you? And what was and when why? You know, what was it about any specific cases? Yeah, I mean, the ones that really stick with me are the ones where truly innocent people got murdered because that doesn't happen that often. Most of the time when people get murdered, they set themselves up by lifestyle choices or something else to get murdered. But sometimes truly innocent people get murdered. And then the, and then the families of those people, you know, the secondary victims of homicide are the, are the loved ones left behind and the friends. And they're still suffering forever. They do life sentences no matter no matter what. Yeah. And I think about them. And I actually have stayed in contact with a few of them. You know, a couple okay. of them came to my retirement party when I retired, oh, you know, wow. and, okay. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and I'm Facebook friends with some people who are family victims, families yeah. uh, 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 victims I had now, you know, I, I wouldn't be I, I, I wouldn't be personally friends with them when I was working the case. But now that it's all over, I'm fine with it, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's the way it was. Yeah, what would you say? I mean, when struggle, I mean, is it was it different then than it is now where people, again, like, uh, from a victim span, standpoint, uh, of getting, getting some help or, or the right counseling, is, was it, is it different nowadays or much easier for people to um, to seek some help? You said not, or is it the same? It is it is easier for people to seek help, but but the victims are being ignored in today's society. Yeah, all the all the uh, emphasis is on the suspect and his rights or her rights, and none about the victims, and that's outrageous. Uh, yeah. I mean, how do you think we can change that or, or bring more awareness? Well. well how about return to sanity? <laughs> that would be the first thing. <laughs> you know, the victims are the innocent people here. And yeah. the suspects, that doesn't mean you have to be inhuman or, you know, want to throw everybody away for the rest of their lives. But it, in, in cases of murder, it's a little different. And you have to, you know, enforce the laws that exist, investigate and prosecute. And think about the victims. Go in there as a victim-centric uh, prosecutor and not a defendant-centric mm. prosecutor. I have a friend who just retired from the prosecutor's office, one of the top prosecutors in the C- in Seattle, who worked some of the most notorious cases with me over the years. And he called me when he was still working. He goes, I walked into my office today and I think, am I in the prosecutor's office or the public defender's office? Because I can't tell. Okay. That should never happen. Wow. Uh, that's definitely true for sure. Um when you're in school for this, or whether it's a beginning stage or, you know, a, a college class, whatever it may be, um, is it is that the foundation? Is that where it kind of starts going wrong as far as the focus on somebody uh, or more not enough on the victim or as far as solving cases? Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, of course, when I started, I wasn't a detective. I was a patrol officer sure. you know, driving a patrol car with my partner, just like everybody else. I still dealt with victims, but not long-term. Um, mm-hmm. By the end of the night, I was done. I didn't have anything more. When you're a detective, that case is on your desk, maybe for weeks, months, or even years. Yeah. And you have continual continual contact with the victim. And even, even the ones that were solved, the victim's families would sometimes call and just want to talk. And I would talk to them, you know, oh, wow. about things. And, yeah. and wow. you know, a couple of years ago when uh, – when in Washington, when COVID struck and they're talking about letting prisoners out of prison, I can't tell you how many fans calls I got from victims' families thinking that mm. their suspect was going to be let out. And I assured them he, they wouldn't. And they weren't. So yeah. that worked out. <laughs> so, but sure. yeah. And yeah. What are some things, um, for example, I have, you know, a lot of my followers 
you have kind of like both sides of the fence in this kind of true crime genre. They're fascinated by serial killers or they want, right. to, they want to be in a life of of some type of law enforcement or criminal justice uh, sure. or about to go to school or going to school. What can you say to them that um, you're not probably going to learn this in the classroom? I mean, what are a few things that expect where this is going to be real life I and mean, you're going to have to experience yeah. it? You know, what are some things that you can have them tell them to expect that you, know, you might not learn this? <laughs> well, the, the reality is if oh, – well, there's two different – that's the people that want to get into this work are the people that are just true crime junkies. And I've, I deal with all, I, I spoke at a true crime conference actually one year ago in, in Georgia, in Savannah, Georgia. Oh, wow. And that room was packed. 85% of them were female because they love this stuff. And I mm-hmm. understand it. And they just, because it's fascinating to them. And you know, it's a big, it's a big genre right now, obviously. Sure. Uh, so for them, it's just more of, it's an entertainment thing and they're into it and they're fascinated by it. For the people that want to get into this work, just know at the beginning it will change you forever. It'll change the way you look at people. It'll change your personality. It'll change everything. And so you better get everything up front with your loved mm-hmm. ones right away and, mm-hmm. and communicate back and forth that, you know, you know, when I was a 16, 17, 18-year-old kid, I, you know, I had a different personality than I did when I was a 25, 30, 35-year-old cop. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't as... I wasn't as you stand up more. You're, you know, like I said, it takes a certain mindset to run toward danger rather than running away. Sure. And, you know, so you have to, yeah. Like when the shots are being fired and you're running toward those shots where everyone else is running away from those shots. Yeah. And so that takes a different mindset and it makes you, you know, much more aggressive, not in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Um, but cause you have to be, you know, like I said, there's this whole argument of uh, guardians versus, uh, guardians versus uh, warriors. Well, you can be a guardian. The old thing is the sheepdog is a guardian to the sheep until the wolf comes around. Then he better become a warrior or he's not going to win. Oh, right. Yeah. You have to switch from guardian <laughs> to warrior. And, and, and they're not the same. You can't be just a guardian all the time because mm-hmm. when stuff really gets bad, uh, when the poo-poo hits the air conditioning, <laughs> you have to be aggressive. You know, you yeah. have to really be in there and challenge it. And so that's a different, which is a good thing because it's mm-hmm. good that people do that. But, uh, you know, it'll, it'll change you in, mostly for the good. I mean, if you're not the right personality, you know, it can, it can affect you badly. I have a lot of friends that I was not least before. They've been divorced several times that crawled into a bottle. You know, I didn't, it didn't affect me that way. Maybe because I decided, I started looking at this long, time ago and kind of knew what to expect not exactly mm-hmm. of course when i when i was growing up it, even my the reality i found wasn't exactly like what i expected but it was close and so i, I always tell people i think i was divinely created because i just have the right temperament yeah. um stuff rolls off my back you know i don't i, I have a work mode and a home mode uh, it's kind of a power takeoff lever you know <laughs> mm-hmm. and they aren't and and like I said, the work me and the home me, if they ran into on the street, wouldn't recognize each other. Oh, wow. And that's the way yeah. you have to be. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> that's the way you have to be. Can that be that taught? The ment- it's fascinating what you just said. The mentality of when you hear the bullets, you're you run, running towards it or running away. If someone right. does want to, you know, be in law enforcement, but they're like, they're, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a question. You, yeah. you better get that answer qu- question answered before you do it. Because, yeah. you know, I, I think about... Um, back when I was a patrol officer, you know, people would call with German shepherds that wanted to donate them to be police dogs, right? And so what they would do is they would go to the person's house, tell the person to have the dog on a leash, and then uh, hold them on a leash, and 
a guy dressed in nasty clothing would come around the corner and charge the dog. If the dog went forward trying to get the guy, then it was accepted. But if the dog cowered back even a step, we can't take your dog. It's the same thing with people. Yeah. It has to be your instinct. And, you know, you got to think about that and, 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 and go through this whole process in your mind. Could I do it? Could I do it? And could I kill somebody if I had to? The answer better be yes, mm-hmm. because otherwise you're going to get killed or get somebody else killed. Oh, wow. And not mm-hmm. that you want to do that. Of course. But you say, yes, I can do that if I have to. Right? Again, that's a warrior versus guardian mentality. Yeah. Nothing wrong with being a guardian until the war happens. Then you have to be a warrior. And so, um, you know, I think about this case, and I actually talked to a national news agency in the, in the town of Texas at the mall where the guy started shooting, and uh, Allen, Texas. And there was a patrol officer there, and he was there on a routine call, talked to a family when the shots started being fired, and he didn't know what it was, and he immediately mm-hmm. ran. Unfortunately, it was clear across the parking lot. It took him forever to get there, and he was out of gas by the time he got there, but he ran toward the fire and actually ended up shooting the guy and wow. saving countless lives Wow! That if he hadn't been there. And that's what you, you have to – and it's because you're trained that way. Run, run toward danger, not run away from it. You know, it's just like firefighters. Run into the fire, not out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, those type of things. So, yeah, you have to have that mentality, and if you don't have it now, you have to work on getting that mentality. You know, in 90, yeah. 99% of your career, you're not going to have to do that. But well, it depends on where you work. It wasn't 99% of my career. I, I did that <laughs> in a bigger city, you know. But in some small cities, especially, you know, oh, people always say, this guy worked for 30 years and never once drew his gun. I probably drew my gun 10,000 times in my career. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, it's not like, yeah, this. Now, I didn't fire my gun, although one of my sons has been, one of my sons was in a shooting wow. a couple of years ago, yeah, but yeah. I never fired my gun. But I was there when it happened, you know, when other cops were, or just arrived moments after but uh you have to you have to get yourself in that mentality that you could and just play through it in your mind you know i used to go to sometimes especially when i was younger I'd, I'd be falling asleep and thinking if this happens this is how i'd react if this happens this and sure. went through it in my mind so that if it ever really happened and i don't know if i was intentional or not because i but if it really happened i was ready because i already planned what i was going to do it's just like if you're playing baseball if you're playing baseball and you're playing a position and you think to myself, if the ball gets hit to me, this is what I'm going to do. You have to do that in police work, too. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I mean do you remember your first time when the bullets were flying and you ran in or pulled a gun? Do you remember the yeah. very first time and what you were thinking? It was a hesitation or you, I was on? No, well, actually, the, the very I can't remember the first time that I went to the first shooting where bullets were still flying when I got there. But I do remember one time my, when I only had like six months on the street. And uh, I was working alone. My partner had taken the night off. I was working a car by myself. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. And we got a, there was a call of an armed robbery in progress at this tavern. And I was like six blocks away. And so I went racing over there. And then, I, then while I'm going there, they say, he's taken the bartender hostage. And, you know, and, then, and uh, now he's in a car. He's in a brown Ford. And as we're getting, and now he's, he's stuck on the railroad tracks. He's tried to drive over some railroad tracks. And I pull up, and there's the brown Ford. The doors are open. <laughs> The car's on the railroad tracks and people are pointing down the street. And I look and I see the man running down the middle of a street next door. And I, it happened to be River Street. And so I said, I got on the air and I said, he's running southbound on River. Unfortunately, on the other side of the bar, there is a river. <laughs> and everybody thought I said he's running toward the river, but he was on River Street. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I took <laughs> off. Yeah, I took off down that street by myself. And he went into some bushes and I got out of my car. And it, it's like. Like, again, I remember this because I had six months on the police, on the street, out of the academy. And it's like they say, 
everything went in slow motion. You know, I could hear the radio <laughs> broadcasting in my head, use extreme caution, suspects armed and dangerous, blah, 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 blah. So I went around that. I, I kind of did a uh, I move around the bush. You know, you just graduate. And there he was standing there and he had a gun in his hand. And I'm screaming, I'm, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the effing gun. And he stood up for a second. It was his, it was pointed down, but then he dropped the gun and I grabbed him. And fortunately, somebody else saw my car and they came down and helped me arrest him. And I found out later that night he'd murdered somebody earlier in the night. And oh, I didn't wow. know that. Yeah, he was a murder suspect, not just a robbery suspect, but I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and yeah, I don't remember that case at all, but his guy's name was Richard Sanford DeShields. Mm. <laughs> and that was in 1980. So, wow. yeah, that was when, yeah, the first time that I, the one I remember that, and because I, I thought I, afterwards I said I should have shot him because he could have raised that gun and shot before I had a chance to react. Sure, I thought yeah, I should have. Yeah. Yeah, I should have shot him. I should have shot him. And I kind of was kicking myself in the head for not. Mm-hmm. It ended up okay, but it might not have, you know. Sure, definitely. I mean, does that does it get easier the more you do it of confronting fear? Yes, yes, because you – well, I didn't really have fear. The fear doesn't happen when you're doing it because okay. you're like in this zone. It's uh, when it's okay. over that the fear comes. <laughs> I didn't feel any fear when I was doing it. I didn't – I was I was a heightened, heightened alert psychologically, mentally, hearing, sight, although I had tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. I remember that. But I didn't have any fear until he was in custody. And that's when it hit me. That, oh, wow. oh shit, I could have got myself killed. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah. Fu- it's funny, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, it's 100% yeah. true. Oh, I love yeah. That's wild. And the other thing, but yeah, as you get older and, and you get more experience, then it's a lot quicker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if that same thing, same thing happened five years later, I'd have blasted him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's wild is, and uh, I mean, maybe I'm sure it's for every generation, but there's the group of people in the neighborhoods who aren't committing crimes or doing anything bad, who look at, you know, people like you and cops as essentially superheroes, you know, the crime fighters yeah. in that way, but not everybody, you know, you're also the enemy. Right. Um, I mean, how difficult is that to, to know when you're driving in a certain town or, you know, if you're, you know, a, a street cop anyway, or anytime, you don't have to be, um, that you are the enemy. It's like, wait a minute. I'm the good guy. You know, I, I'm the yeah, superhero well, you know, here. And, but it's a mentality of like, you know, Grant, there's a few bad apples, you know, in, in the police. Right. We yeah, sure. In, in anything, but not, not counting them. But in general, yeah. it's like, man, I, I want to make a difference in this community. But how can I make a difference when they're looking at me at the end? I'm not the enemy. <laughs> you know, how right. hard is that? for? Well, you know, yeah, I, I worked eight at night to four in the morning in the highest crime District of Seattle when I was patrol officer. Oh, wow. Eight nights, four in the morning. And so I ran into a lot, of, first of all, a lot of violence, a lot of, it was all the shootings all the time and stuff like that. But I remember uh, arresting a bunch of gangbangers, and I forgot what, four on a corner one day. And it was like summer evening. It was like eight thirty nine o'clock. It was still light out. And we get them in the car, and this elderly black couple come out and say, thank you so much for doing that. We really appreciate that. Oh, you know, wow. and it's like, wow. And I'd run into that all the time. Matter of fact, a great story. I, I, I don't even remember about it. Something I did as a patrol officer, I don't remember what it was, but later on when I'm a homicide detective, I'm in my office, and the, uh, a computer guy comes by, an IT tech, and he's doing something on my on my computer, and he says, you probably don't remember me. And I go, no, I don't. He goes, you came to my house, and my mom was there back, blah, 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 for whatever reason, and and you were so nice that we just really appreciated you. This is a black guy. That. And I go, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I saw a lot of people. And it was just nice of him to say that. You don't remember me, but, yeah. you know, and this is a guy I knew later because he was an IT guy in the police department, but I, I don't remember what I went to his house for or whatever. But he said, my mom was really happy after you left that you took care of the problem. And, and so, you know, those things kind of come back and reward you. Yeah, I was, was going to ask you if you could think of examples where, 
where you did make a difference in somebody's life? Was there any, <sighs> any more specific ones where, or not just you, or maybe somebody that you knew, um, yeah. where, where they looked at you initially as the enemy, but either came back and thanked you or you, direct involvement or indirect involvement of, of change, you know, and of changing somebody's life? Well, I mean, I, most of the people I dealt with, I changed their life, but not for the better. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when I was a homicide, I did. Yeah. Although I had one case, this murder happened uh, right across the, the downtown ferry terminal underneath a viaduct there at the time. And this guy smashed another guy's head in with a brick. And, mm. and long story short, I didn't know who it was. And it took three or four days. So I figured out who it was. And I grabbed him. We, we grabbed the guy I thought was him, brought him in. And I talked to him for an hour and a half or two hours really quietly and easily. And at the end, he can confess to the murder. And he was sentenced to like 35 years in prison. Mm. About 10 years later, something happened where they had to resentence him because of uh, some court decision. They had to do a resentencing. So mm -hmm. I went to the resentencing hearing. And when they brought him in, he looked at me and goes, how you doing, man? He's like, my, he thought I was his best friend. <laughs> and I'm the guy that put him in prison. But you know, that's the thing. Because I don't, you don't get in their face. You don't get in the face and yell at, suspects now mm -hmm. you do sometimes do that for witnesses that are lying to you sure. yeah, you might get in there they're more confrontational because they're lying to you and, and you just got to try to rile them up and get them so they'll tell you what they mm -hmm. know but suspects you never do that and i've had lots of suspects tell me i mean i there, there was another guy absolutely crazy guy that picked a woman at random on the street on new year's eve one year and stabbed her to death and he picked her completely at random and then left him. We, it took us a week to figure out who he was. And mm -hmm. we finally brought him. And he was crazy as a loon. Absolutely insane. <laughs> Not legally insane, but he was crazy. And we're talking, and, I, and I'm, you know, his name was James. And I'm talking to him real quietly and, and kind of got him boxed in. You know, this is a three or four hour interrogation. And I'm sitting right next to him. My knees are almost touching. I'm leaning in. I'm almost whispering. This case is actually in the book. And, and, he, and I see him kind of staring down at the floor and i said you know james it's okay if you want to cry and instantly he started crying and oh, i knew i had him. wow yeah he started wow. crying and then I, I put my arm around him and he and then, and then he eventually he confessed hmm. but so this guy was so crazy we had to talk to him about something else a couple of days later get a dna sample or something from he was in jail in the ultra security section and he would the kind of guy would poop in his hand and throw it at the guards oh. and we called over there and said we need to take james out of jail for him and says they said we'll bring him down for you mm -hmm. so they bring him down and he's going crazy and he spits right in the face of a jailer and oh. I, they grab it throw him in the car and i <laughs> and i'm like i'm like james what are you doing you know they're gonna kick your ass when you get back he goes yeah i know <laughs> but he was fine um, he liked my partner and i because we were nice to him and he just was calm as can be and we were doing yeah. he brought it back he didn't act like we were with us at all but yeah, yeah that's uh those are some of the cases there's sure. a couple of when i was in sex crimes that you know i, I don't want to say too much because a couple of my uh -huh. friends with sure. now uh -huh. that i handled when they were children uh -huh. that expressed to me later contacted me out of the blue later saying how much i, hel I helped them and they might listen to this podcast. And I don't want to, you of know, course. give up any of their, any oh, of their yes. oh, yeah, personal yeah, yeah. stuff. But you know, those that's rewarding when you hear that stuff. Yeah, and it seems like I mean, see, my podcast is of the lighter side of serial killers. We're literally I'll have serial killers call the yeah. show. And in one of the books that I wrote, uh, I, I studied neurology, specifically with psychopathy, and and it's kind of what you're saying um, holds true. Even what helps, or when say helps. Um, but deters somebody with psychopathic mind for doing negative things. Like a psychopathic mind is not deterred by punishment. When they can't feel right. fear, no. you're not doing anything. You're going to treat them negatively. Of course, they're going to treat you negatively. But pos yeah. positive reinforcement 
has been shown to go a long way, even in prison facilities. Oh, yeah. You know, hey, you'd be good. We will give you an extra pudding with your with lunch or yeah, right. time for video games. And the violent crime has gone down, and among other things. But it seems like, like you're saying, the way you're handling somebody, yes, I'm going to arrest you. you know, but I can do right. it in such a not necessarily kind and loving way, but with respect to where right. we look back later on. Oh, yeah, this guy smashed me around a little bit. Oh, but this guy treated me with respect. You know, I, I did what right. I did. And so it seems like just being positive towards them and, and treating them like a human being, no matter how horrible the crime, that seems to be almost similar to where they remember that and they treat you with the respect that you retreated them, and at least in those examples. Yeah. You know, I handled a serial murder in the late 90s, my partner and I did. And same thing. He was, you know, he was kind of a, but he's clearly a psychopath mm-hmm. and he, when he would we would have conversations with him about other stuff and he was actually kind of pleasant you know he wasn't but he'd get in his talk about it when he finally confessed to the first murder then we got then the, once the ice broke then he confessed to the other murders he uh he would get guttural and all this stuff and but we would take him he we he'd we go on field trips with him and he'd want to have he liked these this one place called Matt's Hot Dogs. He goes, "Can we go to Maddie's while we're out?" And I go, "Yeah, well, what do you want?" And we go over there and buy. I said, "Matt's Hot Dogs, preferred by three out of four serial killers." Yeah. <laughs> but the same thing. But then, so only about a few years ago, I have a friend who's a criminologist. He's actually in Wales, mm-hmm. but. He was, he's, and I'd talked to him before about this guy, and he says, if I'm ever out there, I want to go visit this guy in prison. I said, okay. So he came out here, and we did. We went and visited him in prison, and he was fine. But my favorite quote from him in prison, this whole serial killer thing isn't as glamorous as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, exactly. my God. Yeah. And it's amazing, even talking to them, where even in Oregon. You know, like Keith Jesperson, a happy face killer. He's, oh, yeah. He's been on my show countless times. I talked to him maybe once a week. Yeah. He'll call up. But with yeah. him, a lot, like my show is called The Lighter Side because it's about positive change. Now, right. if the, I've also building relationships with these men and women for, you know, for countless years and, you know, trust is built up. Yeah, it takes, but, it takes a while. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but who they really are, and you can almost talk into them like a normal person, at least nine times out of ten. Right. What I've noticed with You can, yeah. Yeah, but with Keith... Like someone who's – no, there's levels of obviously psychopathy. But with Jesperson, for example, um, you know, you know, psychopathic or narcissistic, you have to talk differently. You know, they have to be in yeah, control. They have to be in control. They'll talk your ear off even if they ask you a question. Be brief, answer, and let them talk some more about what they want to talk about. Exactly, so yeah. For, for you, for all the interroga- interrogations for all these years, I guess you have to be – almost like multiple people, like multiple minds going at once where you have to read them, see who they are, how to approach them, how to talk to them. Is that something, can you teach, is that taught in the classroom or like, man, you just got to learn how to read people and how to. Well, actually, (laughs) actually I teach interview and interrogation. I have all across the country. Yeah. And I do it for detectives here. And, and that's exactly one of the things I say, you know, you have to look, you have to get in their space and, you know, slowly and you have to watch them and look for, uh, you know, uh, nonverbal cues to know what's important, what's not. And, and, you know, like I said, work your way in, take your time. Um, but, and, and exactly do that. You know, I've had several people like that, that you just kind of slowly go out and then first of all, I let them tell their lie, go all the way through it. Don't interrupt them. Let them tell the whole story. And then go back and pick apart this piece and that piece and this piece and that piece until they're kind of trapped, you know. Yeah. And so that's what you do. You know, you have to, uh, you have to, uh, you have to take your time. And it's a it's a battle of the wits, and they come unarmed. That's what I always tell people. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's what you got to. You have to plan it, and you have to have the right personality. My I, one of the things for me is I have a good memory. So three hours in, 
I ask the guy a question 15 minutes in and ask him again three hours in and he gives a different answer, I'll remember. Uh, and they don't yeah. remember because yeah. they're, they're, they're making it up as they go. Yeah. And I don't ask exactly the same question. <laughs> I kind of ask similar, but it has to have the same answer and they'll, they'll give me something completely different. I'll say, well, you said that. Earlier you said this. No, I didn't. I said, yeah, yeah you did. This is recorded. <laughs> you want to watch it? It's all recorded. <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, that's the thing. You just got to, it's a chess game. And, you know, oh, I, yeah. th- sometimes these people, they just want to change their story. And, and the other, my favorite is when they want to change, you get them trapped in this story. So they want to come up with a completely different story that none of the facts match. <laughs> for sure. You say, okay, this is what really happened. Oh, oh okay. No. <laughs> you know? Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Know, as far as the book itself, um, what was the reason to write the book? What was, what was the, would you want to get out there to the public? Just that life, you know, of, Hey, if you want to well, get to this yeah, life yeah. it is, or what are, what was your main points to really want to well, get out? Well, first of all, yeah, first of all, I would love this book when I was a kid. <laughs> I would have read this oh, book, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But, but that's not what I was thinking. What I, what happened was, you know, I'd be doing social events with my wife's friends or friends, our kids, friends, parents, and they, you know, they were fascinated. The fact there was a homicide detective and they'd say, what's, what are you working on? And I just tell them what I'm working on. And to me, it was just a day at work, but their jaws are dropping. Their jaw, and I kept hearing over and over, you got to write a book. You got to write a book, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And my <laughs> wife would tell me, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. So then just when I was thinking about retiring, I have a, I actually, whenever there's a homicide in Seattle, they did, they put out a one page homicide incident summary that they give to all the detectives in the unit, give to the command staff so that everybody knows if, if they get a call about something, they know about this. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, a, has a victim's name if they have it, about two paragraphs about this, the facts of the murder. It's just on the very first day. And and so the very first murder I ever handled was a murder of a seven-year-old little girl. Mm-hmm. And when that one came out, that was one was where I had case responsibility. And so I took that, I'm going to save this. This is my first murder. Well, I end up saving every single one of my career, and I have about 250 of those, and wow. it's in a three-ring binder. Mm-hmm. And so what happened when I was thinking about retiring and everybody saying that, I just pulled that book out, and I just started paging through this and that, and they go, oh, I remember that. And I had a lot of my files because I downloaded them to a hard drive when I left, the computerized files. And the ones I didn't have their computerized, I ordered out of the vault and copied them. And I'd go through them and I'd go, oh, this is interesting or that's interesting. Sometimes it's the whole case. Sometimes it's just a, something interesting or funny that – the suspect said, or, you know, that's why there's little vignettes, you know, not mm-hmm. of all, not all of them are complete cases. They're mm-hmm. just sometimes a paragraph or two or a page about one case. And then another one might have a whole chapter, you know, it's longer yeah. because it's more involved. But, mm-hmm. and so that's what I did. And I just wrote them all down. And then I, then I, when I did that, I realized I had way too much and I went back and cut it by about <laughs> a third. <laughs> and, you know, I, you, you don't write books, you rewrite books. Oh, yeah. Right? So, yeah definitely. And that's what, and, and that's what, and then I finally got, I go, this is probably good. And so that's what I, that's what I published. And, uh, you know, I was actually shocked at the, at the, uh, at the amount of cover or the amount of people who were interested in that. And a couple mm-hmm. of websites really cited it. And I'm like, wow. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> what was yeah kinda, so I was like, I'm, what was the feedback? You know, for you, like some of the rewarding feedback that you've gotten from. Oh you know, my God! A lot of cops, but man, that's the best book I ever read in my life. Which is <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that's an exaggeration because you don't read enough. That's what I yeah. said. You just don't read enough. <laughs> but you know, um, Joseph Wamba. I don't know if he is. He's a famous police author. He was a cop in L.A. for years, and he did Choir Boys and and uh, a lot of these other new centurions and. He got a copy of a book and he said he liked it, so that made a lot to me. And oh, then, nice. uh, and then other, you know, strangers sending me notes, 
you know, I get emails and notes, say, hey, I loved your book. This is great. You know, or, mm-hmm. or reviews. I look, sometimes look at the reviews and people, I'm surprised that people just loved it. And they like the pace of it, you know, and it's not flowery and it's, you know, I, I try to make, mm-hmm. you know, I put some dark humor in there to make somebody chuckle when you're reading it, you know, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I mean, it definitely has, it's a great flow. I want to say it's a quick read, but it's, it's almost like rapid fire. Like you're going to get, yeah, that's what that's what I hear. Yeah, so it's not like a slow yeah. a slow read. You're going to get bored by it. no. It this is an action movie. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what I've heard. Yeah. There's, there's drama. I mean, there's suspense. There's everything in there, but it's a quick paced action movie. I mean, it's it's one you it, you yeah. can't put it down because as soon as one case ends, you're like, well, what's tomorrow? Another one. What's the next one going to be? And and you start. Reading, yeah, well, I got to find out what happens at the end of the case. <laughs> you got to keep reading and reading and reading. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, that, that's. And the other thing people say is there a lot of short chapters so they can put it down and come back to it. You know, there's mm-hmm. no long. You know, when you when you're reading a book, and I read a lot of books, mm-hmm. you're reading a book and you come to a place where you have. 10 pages of complete block text to go, oh, my God. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely true. And yeah. um, on the other side of the coin, uh, we have the true crime book. Now, right. what, now, this is something I believe that you were not involved in this case at all. I wasn't. You're no. in that area. But what was it about this case to at least not just get your interest? It's zero color. It's interesting. But specifically about this, just because it was a local area or what made you really decide? Well, here's what happened. There's kind of a here's what happened when I wrote, wrote the first book. I get an email from some guy and he goes, "Hey, what do you know about Gary Grant? He was killing people in Renton, which is a suburb of Seattle, in the late '60s, early '70s." And I'd never heard of Gary Grant. And at the time, I was working for the Attorney General's office in the Homicide Investigation Tracking System, which tracks all murders and stuff. And I had interest professionally to this because I was running. I was the chief investigator of that, and I so I said. I talked to my couple of my analysts. You ever heard of this guy? I go find out about it. And then they called Renton Police. Well, we got his name here, but not much. And King County Sheriff. Yeah, not really. And then I called a prosecutor, paralegal, and the prosecutor in the homicide area. And I said, "Do you have a court file on this case?" And she said, "Let me call you back." And she called me a day later. Yeah, we got it. And I said, "Can I borrow it?" She goes, "Yeah." And my intention was mm-hmm. to f- copy it and enter it into our database, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I do. And so I do that. I copy it and everything, and I digitize it, and then. About a week later, I get a call from a publisher that says, hey, yeah, we are uh, we saw you wrote that other book, and it did pretty well, but we're looking for kind of older, historic true crime books oh, well. that are interesting. Do you have any? And I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? I said, well, there's this one case, and they sent me a proposal form, and I filled it out, and they said, write it. So it, it, this was kind of weird because they only wanted, I forgot how many words, 50,000 words, which is nothing, mm-hmm. sure. and like 50 pictures. Mm-hmm. And so – I said, okay. So I did actually, I was making the final edits in a, in a condo in Maui. And they said, write it. And they did. And they published it. So that's how that happened. I had no intention of writing a book like that. Oh, that's hysterical. So that's, yeah, that's how it happened. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I've talked to Gary a few times, maybe five or six times myself. And, oh, yeah. And I haven't heard about him. You know, I know everybody. Yeah. And then, so I had to look him up. Well, I guess that's why it's called Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer for some reason. It wasn't like making the mainstream. Um, but even now, I mean, let's just for a second talk about the culture we live in. What, sure. Why – what is it do you think – I mean, because serial killers have obviously always been around. But now every TV show you're turning on, whether, whether it's Netflix, Amazon Prime, it's true crime. Oh, yeah. They're all bad. It's it. I mean, what yeah. do you think the fascination is um, nowadays with serial killers when they've really always well, been around? Yeah, they have been around. And, and the thing is – but it's all kind of a um, – I don't know. It's in that true crime thing and the, and the – eeriness of it and all that kind of stuff you know and i tell people all the time 
that 99% of serial killers, nobody's ever heard of because yeah. they're doing three or four or five. They're not doing 50 or 60. <laughs> and the other thing is, I always tell people, is that real serial killers are not Hannibal Lecter because he'd be easy to avoid. Yeah. <laughs> real serial killers yeah. are your neighbor down the street, yep. the mailman, the guy in the grocery store. Those are what real serial killers look like. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't know. Sure. They live a normal life on the surface, but they have this deep dark. And people are fascinated by the psychology of it. I have a lot of friends who are forensic psychologists, forensic uh, uh, psychiatrists. Catherine Ramblin is a friend of mine. She wrote a great book on BTK mm-hmm. where she got to know him for a long time and then wrote this big book and then and then other people and and. They're into the psyche of it and how, what yeah. happens. Is it nature or nurture? Oh, yeah. You know, um, yeah, it's a little bit of both, I believe. Mm-hmm. I believe you have a propensity in nature to be that. But if, if you are, you know, if, if you're nurtured as a child, a baby, when a baby cries and the mother or father calm the baby and get, you know, help them get over that, then that's good. But if they just let the baby cry and the baby has to self calm and that kind of stuff, kind of, kind of, uh, creates it doesn't mean you're going to be a serial killer first of all you know as well as i do that uh, 97 percent of psychopaths are not serial killers Mm -hmm. right (laughs) but they're just yeah but but they're you know they're car salesmen or whatever you know but yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. they're the guy that beats his wife and drinks beers but yeah they're not serial killers only the small percentage get to that point exactly and so but they're the fast ones people are fascinated by Oh, for sure. I mean, it's amazing. Like somebody like BTK, like Dennis Rader, you know, I've talked to him a bunch yeah. of times and you, people are amazed. One, you're just holding how hot you're, I'm say maybe 90% or can hold a conversation like me and you. So when they come on the podcast, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. we're talking about yeah. funny things and how they are, what's, yeah. what's working in their life. And a lot right. of these guys do artwork. Like BTK sent me a bunch of artwork. Oh, yeah. He, he's drawing puppy dogs. Bumblebees, flowers, right? Yeah, exactly. Haiku. I mean, he can compartmentalize. I mean, it is another size. Yeah, he can. It is a completely different yeah. size. I mean, Jesperson's probably the only one, maybe BTK to a degree, but doesn't really talk about it. Where he's just unapologetic. Like we went through details right, yeah. of the murder. You know, I mean, but that's again a part of the brain. Like I said, you can be a, a, a psychopath, where especially with the amygdala's damage, where okay, you don't feel empathy, you don't feel fear, fear. But again, it's a mixture of everything else: childhood abuse, blah 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 blah. But yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you can have psychopathy, but you're the perfect person for the bomb squad. You know, yeah, exactly. race car driver. No, <laughs> yeah, that's right. No fear, no nothing. You know, or even even uh, even in police work to a degree. You know, when they don't, yeah. feel, they don't feel empathy. Well, they might be right. Handed. Exactly. They don't take the cases home as much as maybe somebody else. Right. Um, but you'd know, be amazed. This is why when you talk to, they're expecting when they call my show to be like, you know, now there's some who are just out of their mind. But they're expecting to be like, you know, they're not no. like drool coming out of the mouth and hiding under yeah, a rock. That, they aren't that way at all. That's what they're not with that at all. No, it's like yeah. the Ted Bundy's of the world where they were so charming. Like, right. Even an interviewer one time, a beautiful girl interviewed him. And at the end, and she's laughing in her interview. And at the end, she felt sick to her stomach. He's like, I got caught up. I can see how he can. Get yeah, exactly. Because I, I was not to she's fall in love with him, but that flirtatious, the charm and his yeah. talking. And the next thing you know, you're you're dying. <laughs> you know, you're well, you know, yeah. Even in, in Bundy's case, I always point out the Florida judge that sentenced him bought into that BS. You know, I mean, it, yeah, it's just a yeah. first of all, yeah. He goes, <laughs> yeah, I wish you to, you took the wrong path, pal. Yeah. You could, I, I love having you 
practice in my court. Yeah. That is not him. That's yeah. a facade. <laughs> and this judge didn't understand that. The judge bought in like everybody else, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. But you can tell him, make him think you buy into it, but mm-hmm. don't really buy into it. And yeah. not as sentencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can make him think you buy into all this BS, but don't, yeah, don't really buy into it. People oh, do, yeah. though. You know, that's yeah. the thing. Actually, a friend of mine was one of the detectives on the BTK case in uh, Wichita mm-hmm. that was there when they arrested him and did the whole sting with a floppy disk and, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and the whole thing. So, Oh, wow. And what do you think? I, I love getting – even asked, you know, Frank Fowles on this too. Um, like the 70s and 80s were kind of like the heyday or the golden era of serial killers where they right. had they, they, the, they, the Green River Killer. And you, you can't amass yeah. amount all these bodies. Not anymore. You'll get, that's because I mean, it's not going to happen. I was going to say it's well, never going to happen again because of forensics. That's they're getting caught after two or three. Yeah, two or three. They're getting caught after because of the advances in forensic science. People mm-hmm. that would have gone on and killed hundreds or, or, or 30, 40, 50 are getting caught early. Maybe the first one, maybe the second one, mm-hmm. you know, and so they're not. And that's the problem is sometimes these these courts don't recognize that. And then. Uh, and then they, you know, think, well, we should let this guy out, you know, after 20 years. And he's still, yeah. say he did it was 20, you want to let him out in 20 years, he's 40, he's still going to kill. Yeah. Like the whole VTK, yeah, he must be dead or in prison because he stopped killing, but then he started again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he wasn't. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the same thing with Gary Ridgway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's either dead or in prison. No, he's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he started again. And that's that's the thing, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's like they have to, and to a degree. I mean, that's the way they their, do have their to. brain works. They can't. They can make. Yeah. It, they have the power to stop for a while, but that's how the brain. For a while, works. yeah. That, that's just how exactly. Mm-hmm. The only thing that stops them is either imprisonment or they just get too physically old and frail to do it. That's the only yeah. thing that'll stop them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the, with or the, death, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. No doubt about it. Yeah. And uh, and it's amazing. It's it's a weird spot for judges to be in. Um, part of the book I wrote was, you know, studying the brains and how MRIs have advanced so much where you can read an MRI of the brain and say, oh, that's a psychopathic brain because of X, Y, and Z is not being activated. <laughs> yeah. So it's almost like, man, you almost wish – you can't. I mean, it's a violation, of course, but it's like – just like when you get fingerprinted, like almost like a brain scan. Like if I can just yeah, see, yeah, you yeah. Know, hold up, it's not going to hold up in court, but it's like and some, no. say that in some instances they are allowing scans in court you know, in a very small amount. Yeah, um, right. They haven't made much of a difference either way because it's like, okay, he's not clinically insane because a psychopath would know right from wrong, but that's – it's almost like we got to change yeah. the definition somehow because they're psychopaths. Right. They know right and wrong, but they can't stop killing. You know, It's almost like it, they, they lost their free will not to, but, oh, you only got you for one murder. You might be back out in 20 years. You're going to kill again. But what can we do? You know, we yeah. Can do. Well, you know, maybe that's – there again, that's the physical sign that was the nature, but the nurture took over on mm-hmm. some of these people. They never became yeah. psychopaths. I have, actually have a friend, another friend who's a criminologist up in Toronto, and he did a study on exactly this thing a few years ago, and they were scanning all these brains, and one of his assistants come up and says, look at this brain. Look at this scan. He's going, oh, yeah, that's definitely a psychopath. And his assistant says, this is your brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, How does that happen? Yeah. This, <laughs> the same, uh, it's almost the same, same exact story, James Fallon. He's one of the most yeah. famous guys. He, he wrote the book, and he's like looking at different scans, like, oh, let's see. This is a psychopathic brain. It's mine. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, brain, exactly. You know? That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. That's exactly right. Yeah. But it's like and so. he would look forward to a future where, okay, everybody with this brain scan has to live over here. You know? It's like, but what do you do? Yeah. You can't say that. You can't yeah. say we can't lock you No, you can't. Because, because again, you don't know if they're going to be Some of those killers. people are not really – some of those people are not going to be serial killers. They exactly. may not be psychopaths. Exactly. But they have those markers that – 
because maybe they had loving parents and got raised right that mm-hmm. it over it, it compensated for their propensity for that, exactly. but they're not that exactly. Yeah. Now the yeah. people you talked to about this case, um, I think it was Christopher Baylor, when the prosecutors, Michael De Julio or De Julio, the one, right? The judge, yeah, yeah, yeah. David, what when you talk to them, um, did that case still? Like, like just stay with them or their parts. Was it that bad to them? Where man, this is really stuck oh, with yeah. me. Uh, what was it oh, about yeah. that? Case? Matter of fact, yeah. the the most. It, it, well, first of all, I knew Mike DeJulio myself because he was prosecutor when I was still working. So I didn't work directly with him, but I knew him casually, and so that was easy. Um, but Edmund Allen Jr., who was the son of Edmund Allen, who was one of the prosecutors, his dad had died a couple years before. Edmund Allen Jr. is also a former prosecutor and attorney now, and he talked to me a lot about how this affected his dad and his dad talked to him about it. The rest, first of all, it was the last case he prosecuted because he was already in private practice, but he came back as a special prosecutor for this case. And, he's, and he, his dad told him about when he was there, the little boys were killed and the little boy had these black uh, rain boots with a red stripe around him. And Ed is the same age and had those same boots, how it affected him emotionally, oh, wow. you know, and his, his, and his dad and Ed, Ed Allen Jr., told me how this profoundly affected his father for the rest of his life. Yeah. And, and the same thing with, you know, Chris Bailey was more, uh, he was the elected prosecutor and he was more technical on the terrible mistakes that were made in this case that fortunately they overcame. And then uh, the judge who long retired, but his son is a prosecutor. And I knew his son. That's why, because I, I reached out to his son and said, hey, did your dad ever talk? And he goes, my dad's still alive. He goes, he is? <laughs> Here's his number. I thought cause he'd be, he was in his 90s, right? <laughs> so I called him and talked to him. <laughs> when I was talking in the past tense, he goes, oh, my dad's still alive. You want to talk to him? Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, yeah, it did affect a lot of people, of course. And then I, afterwards, I got a message from the sister of one of the kids who was first upset that I even wrote this book, Mm. you know, because why are you bringing this stuff back up? And I said, because your brother deserves to not be forgotten Mm. along with everybody else. It isn't about Mm. the killer. It's about the victims, right? Mm. And I I think it softened her a little bit. That's good. Yeah. Did they give you a sense? You might know yourself for having so many cases, but they give you a sense of the feeling of the community knowing or once they know like this person is out there. Um, the sense, oh, yeah. The, what do they give you as far as sense of fear of the community? Well, in this case, it's a little different because nobody put the pieces together. Nobody knew these cases other than the two boys. Obviously, they were together. Mm-hmm. But the other two cases, nobody knew they were related until the night he was arrested and he and he confessed to all the cases. And they thought, you know, there was a, a guy who was a polygraph operator for the Seattle Police Department. He was gone long before my time. Dewey Gillespie was his name. And and they wanted to give this guy, the Renton cops wanted to give this guy a polygraph. And so they had to call Dewey in from home and they get there and it's like seven o'clock in the evening and and, and they, they get him in the room and, and Dewey starts talking to him, hasn't even hooked up the machine, starts talking to him and the guy starts crying. And confesses to the murders of these little boys before he's even been asked a question. Yeah. And so, I mean, uh, on the polygraph, he's been asked questions. But and so they take him out to take that confession. Of course, they record his confession. Then they find out that the recorder didn't work, so they have to go back and yeah. write it. <laughs> it was a disaster. Anyway, then Dewey comes back. Can I talk to him again? And they take him and takes him back to the room again, hooking up. No, not, the polygraph is not hooked up. This is one of my things. A polygraph is a tool. It's a tool for a good investigator. You can't rely on the polygraph alone because that doesn't mean anything. A lot of people pass polygraphs. Gary Ridgway passed a polygraph. Um, 
Dahmer passed the polygraph. Mm -hmm. Ted Bundy passed the polygraph. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But he just sat in there with him and he said, he said, uh, I'm thinking of a girl. And then, and then Gary goes, did she have long, dark hair? And they start, yeah. and they go along. He goes, then all of a sudden he's talking about the girl with a short bob haircut. And these are the two other victims that nobody even linked. And then he confesses to those murders. I mean, that's, yeah. it was just all, everything fell in place. But you know, there are some disasters that jeopardize this case after the arrest. That's what uh, I was just going to ask you. I think, I think your yeah. phrase was minefield of issues that, uh, <laughs> yeah. Had to go and, oh, yeah. And, yeah. That was the thing. Yeah. They could have, could have caused this guy to walk free. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and then and then first of all, then the other problem is they'd already arrested and charged somebody and else with the yeah. boys' murders. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and because it, and that was a that's a lesson for police departments because this guy who was crazy as a loon at first knew nothing about this case, and then came, but he talked to him the second time he starts he starts talking about specific details in the case. And, oh, he knows all about it. It must be him. Except they released all that to the paper. It was in the newspaper. Don't release that stuff. You know, you have to leave things back. Yeah. You have to leave things. It reminds me of a case I had one time where this girl's body is found dumped on the side of the road, naked. She's got writing on her body, and, and she's down there. And then and it was right by uh, hydroplane races were going on this summer every year. There's these big hydroplane races. It was really mm-hmm. close to that while they were going on. And we're there, and we pull her up, and she's got a small remnant of like a lawn garden bag on her back, hmm. right? So we took pictures of that, and hmm, that's interesting. Well, we get. It's in the news. It's a big news story because it's right here near the hydro races where 150,000 people are watching the races. <laughs> and people are calling this and that. And then one lady, one day a lady calls and says, my friend says she was at her uncle's house and he told her that his friend had a dead body in a lawn and garden bag. Boink, what? Oh, no. <laughs> we never mentioned that lawn and garden. That's, yeah. the, that's our guy. And so that, that call was like at 10 mm. o'clock in the morning. Wow. At 4 o'clock in the morning, we were booking the guy that did it after having – interrogate him and got a confession that not a confession he committed he was there when she died but he made yeah. up ridiculous stories about oh, how it happened wow. and 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 it started like i said in these cases they're like dominoes they're all set up if you get that first domino to to fall then they all fall in order and if yeah. they don't it's not the right lead yeah. right <laughs> that's why you gotta go back and that's why you keeps you hold stuff back just for that purpose. Yeah it makes sense for sure and I mean yeah even speaking of Jesperson and maybe you can answer this maybe maybe there is no real answer but same with him where a lady confessed to one of the murders that he did right just because you know she was abused by her boyfriend and um laverne and she went and she basically you know, implicated him through to get him arrested but once mm-hmm. keith um, said listen i did it oh and here's where i threw the evidence here here and here and they found it to this day there's still a detective out there who thinks they're part of it Oh, they—they were working with you. Yeah, but why uh, do you that's think the problem. that's? I mean, to me, I mean, I've seen this or I've heard about this over and over again. But it's like—is he it, thinking just a pride issue? Listen, they confessed, definitely doing it. But it's like, well, okay, so the prosecution yeah. doesn't want egg on their face. But have you experienced yeah. that too, where just like, listen, you, you messed up. Yes. You know, this that, I mean, <laughs> yes. But why can't you just admit it? You know, just admit it. Yeah. You know, you'll be fine. You know, but get an innocent person out. This guy did it, but. Why is that? Why do you think they they fight so uh, hard to it? Uh, because because they're locked in. First of all, a, a bad detective decides what the answer is and only looks for evidence supporting their thesis. Mm. Where a good detective follows the evidence wherever it goes, even if it's 180 degrees off what they thought when they started. Yeah. And so that you know, I had another serial case uh, where they killed three in Seattle, and then he went back to New Jersey and killed another. Yeah. Uh, and it was a national news case, and they got him in New Jersey. Or they had this murder in New Jersey, and I had to find out about it. 
just by happenstance from another detective in a Jersey Shore town that called me up about this murder up in West Orange, right across from Manhattan, and he's telling me about this stuff. And so I said, "Man, that sounds like our cases." So I called there to the to the eight to the New Jersey people, and I said, "This is I got this serial guy, and he's killed these people, and blah 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 blah." It was a handgun used, which is unusual in serial killings. Mm-hmm. But um, I said, "What kind of handgun do, you, do they tell you?" He goes, "Well, it says it's a Smith and Weston M plus P nine millimeter. That's exactly the same gun we have." Yeah. I said, "Well, I know my guy is out in your area, and he uses that kind of gun." Oh no 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 no! This is a robbery gone bad. This is a robbery gone bad. It's gang bangers. I said, "Okay, well, when that all falls apart, give me a call back." And <laughs> Three days later, they called back, and we have some some casings, and yes, I said them. They still arrested these gangbangers they thought were involved. My guy was a lone wolf. He wasn't hanging out with these. First of all, he's a 35-year-old man. He's not hanging out with these gangbangers, 19 years old, right? And he's a lone wolf, acts by himself. And they charged these guys with the murders, too. And it was months later they finally dropped the charges on all those guys because it wasn't they – had, they had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Part of the problem was this agency back there, all they see is gangbang murders. You know, yeah. That's all they see. Yeah. So yeah. that's all they look for. Because it's everything is it's but you have to have not all gang not all, that same that same murder case when I first got the call of two people dead in the street I went there thinking it was a gangbang murder because mm-hmm. of where it was and it, but it wasn't and I recognized that night this is not a gangbang murder oh, well. but <laughs> so, yeah. but the the thing is yeah you, if that's all you see that's all you see and so you gotta and it wasn't so much the detectives as their as their bosses the administration the detectives were great guys and did good work but uh, mm-hmm. the administration. That looked over him. No, no, these guys are involved too, yeah. and they actually charged him once they knew that it was the same gun and had the same guy. It was he was in custody. They still charged the other guys with these murders. Oh no! I was like, oh, yeah, they had to let him out eventually, but yeah, yeah, oh, it's definitely wild. Yeah. Now with, with somebody like Gary, like I've, I've talked to Gary a bunch of times, and he's also not to say a rarity, but one of the few that I talked to who really wants help. Like he knows yeah. he's messed up in the head. He knows that he did is wrong. Yeah. Not that he's not taking responsibility for it, but he also knows I'm not normal. You know, there's something right. in my head causing me this. I take responsibility to help. Right. But it, I mean, again, it's a different level of psychopathy. But do you think for somebody like Gary, um, reading all of his case and you know, hearing more interviews I've seen a lot longer than I've talked to him, somebody like that can be rehabilitated one day. Whether he's let out or not, it's a different story. But just as far as his mind yeah, goes, I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, yeah, I don't think so. But I'm yeah. sarcastic, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm pessimistic, not sarcastic. Yeah, I don't think. But I mean, like, good for him. Actually, a friend of mine just went and interviewed him in prison a month or two ago because he works at the AG's office where I used to work. They were looking at some stuff, mm-hmm. and he talked. I talked to him about his interview with him, and 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 uh, you know, he admits all the cases that he was afraid for a long time that he if he got a, a case outside of King County where he has a deal with, mm-hmm. he'd get the death penalty. Yeah. And so, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And I don't think they're not going to mess with that, but he, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was talking to him recently and, you know, Gary, you know, Gary actually lived when he was arrested. He lives about four miles from where I live right now. Yeah. And so, oh, wow. and, and yeah, it's real close. And his dump sites, some of the dump sites I hear were real close to where I live. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I didn't work at all in my case, other case, but a lot of my friends did. But he, uh, Gary, you know, I hope he's not listening, but he's not the brightest bulb on the porch. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he still has, yeah, he's room temperature IQ. Yeah. He, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. He's definitely on, on the, uh, still have a childlike uh, mindset. Yeah, exactly. Ways. I mean, he's, I think, I should well, the thing about him, yeah, he's, he's, but he was manipulative. He knew to, if he had that picture of his son on the dashboard, people wouldn't be always a father. Mm-hmm. The, the prostitutes are going to, you know, again, People would warn me, you got to stop. You got somebody killing prostitutes. Oh, no, I can handle myself. I'll wreck it. Because they're looking for Hannibal Lecter, but Gary isn't Hannibal exactly. Lecter at all. Mm-hmm. Gary's the guy that works at uh, Pat Carr painting trucks. 
mm-hmm. just a regular guy, oh, you yeah. know, until you get him in that. Yeah, exactly. Like now, one of the things my buddy, oh, go ahead. One of the things my buddy said to him is that, start asking about why he didn't kill some of them. You know, some of them he let go. He goes, why didn't you kill them? And he'd say, he goes, well, I thought somebody saw me. And he goes, yeah. what's your intention? He goes, oh, my intention was to kill all of them. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was clear. He was absolutely plain about that, mm-hmm. but he thought somebody had seen him. He didn't want to take a chance. So, oh, yeah. so he was manipulative. Mm-hmm. He was smart enough that way, crazy like a fox, yeah. that kind of thing. And a lot of the worst Anyway, you're are. talking about Bundy? Well, I was going to say, yeah, because Bundy would put that fake arm brace on. Oh, yeah. Like, help me lift oh, these yeah. ghost trees or Ed Kemper. He'd have you know, yeah. pictures of family, or his little thing was because he's such a big guy, the bumper sticker on campus because his mom worked there. But he would keep looking at his watch. Uh, can you give me a ride? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Not, no, the whole intention is yeah. you're getting in this car. But he'd make it seem right. like that whole facade of, oh, man, I don't know. I'm kind of running late. I got my kids, whatever. Maybe, yeah, they're, they're very smart. I mean, not all of them, but yeah, they are smart. Manipulative smart. You know, there's definitely. Of course, he sure. walked around with a bowling ball bag with his mother's head in it yeah, too. exactly yeah <laughs> well, who doesn't who doesn't you know <laughs> yeah don't we all really i mean <laughs> uh, another one of my, my big thing is as we kind of wrap up is um prison rehabilitation recidivism i know places right. like, i did a big study i mean on average it's like a 70 over 70 percent chance of recidivism here you know in america of course where there is, yeah i did in norway hold in prison i talked to their warden over there um, and now at the time is about 23%. Now it's about 70% recidivism, recidivism rate because it's this positive reinforcement. Like the guards aren't just hand to hand combat guys. They're skilled in communication and they let the guys click right. and all this positive. Some place like North Dakota adapted that system. Of course they have the lowest recidivism rate, but w- w- what do you think about prison rehabilitation in general in your state and, and across America? And what could we do better? Cause obviously 70% well, isn't, you know- isn't the greatest, but. No, well, the hard part is, is the culture they're coming from is different, obviously, a street culture. And then when they get into prison, they can still hang out with their gangbanger buddies and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. They're all, they're just gang in prison, too. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I'm not a corrections expert by any means. And I know they shuffle people around a lot, which is probably good. So they're not in one facility for a long time. But I just, I just don't know. It's just, oh. That's a tough one. If you know, you yeah. could bottle that one, you'd be a millionaire. Yeah. Because it's, it, but it's the culture on the street and the culture these people are coming from. If you got somebody that screwed up once, and and even if it's a big screw up, you know, they might be savable. But mm-hmm. uh, these people that have you know been in custody most of their life, it's just it's just part of their lifestyle. Yeah. And you know they they're emulating, you know, it's okay to rob and kill, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so. You got to change that culture. That's the. It starts outside before they go. It starts yeah. before they go. Not that people won't still commit crime, mm-hmm. but you know, yeah. I mean, I, every time I used to do this all the time. I'd, I'd have a a young gangbanger doing a murder, and I'd ask about their family. Where's your dad? They'd either say, "I don't know my dad," or "My dad's in prison," and that type of thing. And it's that culture, and it's just it's hard. You know, that's the ninety percent of my. I had a few that had a good family home with a good father and mother, and they just got wrapped up and. and end up killing somebody over yeah. something stupid too but yeah. that's ex- actually the exception not the rule yeah and and last question when somebody does get out i mean i have a lot of people not just from your state but you know all over the country who sometimes have violent urges you know i've talked to people who haven't been caught haven't done anything but you know they still have these you know negative urges well i wonder what it'd be like to this or to do that or yeah. who's gotten out of prison who might want to be thinking of reoffending and they say the same thing I have nobody to talk to, or they're afraid. Right. I can't tell somebody I got these violent urges. So, 
where what can where can somebody or what can somebody do if they're having like these horrible urges to do something before they do it? Who can they talk to? And well, the there show. are people that could talk to people. You know, they're mm-hmm. psychologists, whatever. And, you know, you got to write. Some of psychologists are just or psychiatrists are just handing out drugs like they're candy. You don't want those kind, you know. But you got to you got to find somebody. You got to find a mentorship or something because you got to also not only think about that urge, but if I did this and I got caught, what would happen to me? You know, think mm-hmm. about the consequences. I had a kid, a kid who murdered a guy here. He was 18 years old, and we tracked him back to Laurel, Mississippi, and he yeah. was in custody there. And we talked to him, and, he, and he's and he's asking me, well, "What do you think I'm going to get?" And I said, "You know, with his, I said you're going to probably get 25 to 30 years in prison." Mm-hmm. And he says, "I'm only 18 years old." I said, yeah. "These are all things you should have thought of before you pulled the trigger." You know, yeah. that's the thing. Think about it beforehand. Think, yeah. and there are places that can help you. You know, if you, and and go to if you're a vet, go to veterans groups. If you're not a vet, you know, you know just search. Get a psychologist, a good psychologist, therapist, or a good friend or anybody. But you got to think, what can I do to stop this? Because once you pull that trigger, or once you do that, there's no going back. You're done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and 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 so and not only the effect. Also, look at the effect it would have. If, of course, you're not. If you're a psychopath, they don't care about any of this stuff. They don't care okay. about the effect they'd have on the victim's family sure. or any of that. They don't care at all. But these people, for the most part, are not psychopaths, mm-hmm. but they just have this issue going on. And so you just got to think, what would happen if, what are the consequences if I do this? And if I got caught, what would happen? Well, you'd probably go to prison for the rest of your life or a good chunk of the rest of your life. Yeah. And so that's the thing they got to think. You, know, you got to find help. You got to be proactive. You can't wait and just sit and stew on these things yeah. because you can't control it yourself. You have to have somebody help you. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, we, we thank you so much for taking the time. Um, uh, Homicide, the view from inside the yellow tape, and Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer, Gary Grant. Uh, where can everybody pick up the books at, and how can people follow you on social media if you have any pages? Yeah, I have. Well, I have an author page, uh, Cloyd Stagger Author. Um, and then I have, uh, uh, I have a website that I'm redoing right now. I actually have two websites because I'm also doing some private investigation work, so I have a website for that. And, uh, expert consulting stuff through them. But uh, all the books are available on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, whatever. I just saw somebody wrote a nice thing about uh, the Gary Grant book, which and they said, I was at the Seattle airport, and I picked it up in the bookshop. I went, well, I didn't know they sold it there. But, you know. <laughs> and, and then bookstores here and there, but it's everything's available on Amazon. You know that. Or Barnes & Noble, Target, those places. Great. Perfect. Well, hey, thanks again for the interview, and uh, we'll be seeing you out there. Okay, sounds good. Uh, Thank you. Well, there you go. Uh, what a guy, you know. Uh, just what an awesome guy. A great interview. Um, again, check his books out. Go to Amazon. Show some love. Show some support. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, definitely give it the old retweet. I guess you can still call it Twitter. I guess it's just X now. I don't know, I'm just going to call it Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. X seems just weird. Um, uh, again, he's on Twitter, so I will tag him. Uh, in the post uh, when I shared on the Twitter uh, site or X, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so again, show, show him some love, give him a follow, check out what he's doing, and go. He works on some of his own podcasts. So uh, any just a little search on social media, you can find all the, or even on YouTube too. You can find where he made appearances and uh, all the awesome stuff that he's doing. So check that out. All right, everybody. Again, check out my new YouTube page. I got a few videos up there I've done from the past, but I'm going to be a new. Uh, video podcast, same name, Lighter Side of Serial Killers, as always. Check out Susan Monica. Just put her up there soon uh, already, and soon to have a couple more. Again, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Until next time, see ya. (laughs) 